Welcome to the 20th episode of the National University of Singapore Middle East Institute podcast series, Boots of the Ground, Security in Transition from the Middle East and Beyond. In this series, we look at the future of warfare, which will see uniformed soldier or boots on the ground being replaced by private military companies, autonomous weapon system and cyber weapon. My name is Alessandro Arduino, and I will be the co-host for the series, along with my colleague Amim Lutfi. We are very glad to have with us today Dr. Sergei Suhankin. He's a senior fellow at the Jamestown Foundation and advisor at Gulf State Analytics in Washington, D.C. His area of interest include Kaliningrad and the Baltic Sea region, Russian information and cybersecurity, A2AD and its interpretation in Russia, the Arctic region, and the development of Russia private military company since the outbreak of the Syrian civil war. He has consulted or briefed with CSIS Canada, DIA USA, and other at the European Parliament. His project discussing the activities of Russian private military companies, war by other means, informed that the United Nations General Assembly report entitled Use of Mercenaries as Mean of Violating Human Rights and Impeding the Exercise of the Right of People to Self-Determination. And I think we were on the same panel on this, Sergei. And also he is based in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. Amim, the floor is yours. Hi, Sergei. Uh, thanks for joining us today. Um, I want to start off uh, with, uh, you know, we've been talking about on this podcast, we've, we've been talking about um, the, the Russian private military sector along with Chinese and so on for a while. We had uh, Professor um, uh, Rondo, uh, Candice Rondo uh, on our show for a while. And at that time when we had her, the scatter from sort of what happened in Syria with Wagner Group had not quite settled. Um, and I know in this world, or in this world of sort of private military, things are changing almost every day. Um, so I'm wondering if you could sort of get us up to date with what has happened in this in the world of Russian private military in perhaps like the last year or the last two years. Uh, thank you, Amima. That's a great question. Uh, the last year, especially the last two years, starting from 2019, uh, this period has been marked by uh, several notable developments. The first one is related to uh, the theaters uh, where Russian private military companies uh, were active and where they basically made uh, their names before. Uh, well, I'm referring to Ukraine, Syria, and Libya, where the nature of conflict uh, in each case, by the way, has changed. So in many ways, Russia no longer needs um, these non-state actors, well, as we call them, non-state actors, but it's, of course, questionable. Uh, Russia no longer needs their active participation in these theaters uh, in terms of fighting, in terms of uh, military or paramilitary missions. So this has been one notable change, which is very, very interesting. So what we can see from the ground including Ukraine, Syria, and Libya, uh, Russian PMCs, even though they are still present uh, in, this the in these theaters, their activities, uh, their, the nature of their activities, it has changed, it has evolved uh, more toward non-military or either paramilitary missions, including consultancy, training, uh, controlling local developments, local activities. The second, and perhaps from my perspective at least, perhaps 
more important transformation was uh, basically uh, related and is still related to Russia's uh, deeper involvement in uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, which, uh, well, which was manifested basically in 2019 during the Russia-Africa uh, summit, uh, economic summit uh, that took place in Sochi, uh, where Russia, for the first, perhaps for the first time after the collapse of the so Soviet Union in 1991, openly uh, manifested, openly made it abundantly clear that uh, Russia is back, that Russia is and will be uh, trying to restructure its strategy toward Africa. And of course, uh, this trend, even though uh, Russia started uh, actively, started military, military and paramilitary collaboration with African countries from 2014, 2015. It was the year 2019, uh, rather between 2018 and 2019, uh, that was marked by uh, appearance and growing presence of Russian paramilitaries uh, in Sub-Saharan Africa, starting, of course, from uh, the Central African Republic from 2018, but, uh, of course, uh, the the growing importance started to be visible in 2019. And of course, Mozambique, Sudan, and other places. Obviously, for obvious reasons, in Africa, with the exception of Mozambique, uh, the Russian uh, paramilitaries did not, or they have not taken active part in military hostilities, uh, which for obvious reason, uh, commands and uh, demands very performance of very different tasks Primarily, and I think that the Central African Republic is perhaps the best case study here, it requires more of paramilitary tasks, something that is um, in a way related to what the Soviet military advisors were doing during the Cold War, uh, the kind of services they provided locally. Uh, but there is one visible exception today, Russia's interests are driven by profit seeking so, uh, and uh, of course they are uh, bereft of this ideological compound uh, that the Soviet foreign policy was pivoted towards. So now it's a bit different. And the third interesting development uh, that again started uh, to be visible in 2019 is the role of the state, uh, the Russian state, in, um, in this or within this phenomena that we call uh, private Russia's private military companies. If before 2019, the Russian state was uh, tabooing this topic. It was kind of hushed down. And those people who were trying to develop the topic in Russia were also hushed down in many ways. We know several circumstances, uh, several cases. Then after 2019, both Putin and what is interesting quite recently, the head of Russia's diplomacy, Mr. Lavrov, openly admitted, well, basically they did admit this, that uh, Wagner Group or Russian paramilitaries, shadow companies, they do exist. And um, this is quite interesting, quite surprising. I'm not sure, I don't know if you will be asking me something like this in the future, but uh, this manifested yet another interesting uh, trajectory or rather interesting development, which from my perspective is related to uh, the informational pillar, the information confrontation pillar uh, in or within the range of activities, within the range of tasks that uh, private military companies serve in Russia. So th that's how I would define that. That's these are at least based on my opinion where I stand are uh, the three main developments, the three main changes 
that have taken pla place uh, since 2018 slash 19, 2021. Thank you, Sergey. Your message is very clear. Russia is back, uh, but this time uh, uh, is more rooted in profit-seeking uh, than ideology as uh, it was in the past. Uh, there is a lot of talk about Russia PMC, uh, but um, you differentiate your analysis, especially when you write uh, for Jamestown uh, on war by other means, uh, and you define uh, Wagner Group as a quasi private military company. So how does quasi affect uh, plausible deniability? And especially now that all the focus uh, is centered uh, on the fall of Kabul and Afghanistan, uh, do you believe that in the near future there will be any kind of Wagner involvement uh, uh, in Afghanistan or in Central Asia? Uh, thank you very much, Alex, for this question. Uh, this is uh, basically, I can, uh, if I could, I, I will subdivide your uh, question onto two parts. So the first one is related to this quasi uh, element. Well, since I've started, since I started analyzing uh, Russia's private military companies, what I observed is that they are very, very different uh, from Western military, private military, private military and security companies, to be more uh, precise. Uh, in Russia's case, uh, well, both uh, both phenomena, both um, elements, they sometimes they do use, especially Western, I mean, not especially, but Western private military and security companies, uh, they've been spotted using force, they've been spotted using uh, weaponry, but this is one difference. These cases are exceptional. So even if they do happen, this is not, and this was not the main goal, the main mission of Western private military and security companies. Whereas we analyze, critically analyze, I mean, um, activities of Russian quasi-private military companies, Ukraine, Syria, Libya, Mozambique, we will see that basically what they were doing and instances when they were using weaponry or offensive tactics that was basically their main goal. That was their main destination. That is why they were employed on the first hand. So this is one thing. And the second thing is uh, basically on the surface, um, Russian private uh, military or quasi-private military companies, uh, they are very different from legal point of view from Western private military and security companies. They don't exist. Uh, they don't exist neither in Russia nor internationally. So officially, they are non-entities. They're shadow groups. They are never to be found anywhere in uh, from legal point of view, uh, which I'm really well. I think that this is uh, this is what I believe in. Uh, their status or the lack of this status is the precondition for their existence. They were created on the first hand to remain kind of shadow and to perform those functions, those tasks that Russian, uh, neither part of Russian uh, armed forces or security forces can easily do, neither the Russian army, regular army, nor the special forces, nor even the uh, forces, special, uh, special operation forces or uh, SOF. Um, and the second part uh, to your question is related to Afghanistan. And yes, indeed, everyone is talking about it now. Uh, it's uh, become quite uh, topical, quite trendy. Uh, to be honest, well, uh, there are two things to this. If Russia is economically involved in Afghanistan, 
and um, I'm not sure, I don't know whether this will happen or not, uh, then this might create a foundation for Russian uh, quasi-private military contractors to be there. But again, uh, given the history, uh, given the gruesome history of uh, Soviet or Russian involvement in Afghanistan, and at the same time, considering the local mentality, uh, the fact how they abhor the way how they uh, hate foreign presence in their country, I'm not really sure that Russia will dare, at least again, anything might happen, but uh, based on where I stand right now, I don't believe that Russia is willing or will be willing uh, to get inside Afghanistan with private military contractors. Uh, this will definitely entail rage and hatred from the part on behalf of Taliban, not just Taliban, but also I think all the groups uh, who are in Afghanistan, even those who are against uh, Taliban in a way, and Moscow does not want to repeat any of the uh, or any of that experience that comes from the uh, Cold War or the Afghan War. Uh, speaking about Central Asia, again, I think that uh, Russia's positions in Central Asia are quite uh, vulnerable, and uh, it doesn't make a lot of sense for Russia to use or to deploy private military companies there. Um, because, uh, and we will, I think we will talk about this a little bit later. Russia typically uses, typically employs uh, PMCs, quasi PMCs under different circumstances in, in other countries. Russia is really looking, some of, the, some of the members of Central Asia are members of the Eurasian Economic Union. Some of them might become members of the Eurasian Economic Union. In other countries, such as Kazakhstan, we can see some anti-Russian sentiments, anti-Chinese, of course, and anti-Russian sentiments. So um, I'm not really sure that Russia will take this risk by deploying uh, paramilitaries in countries that are at least semi-friendly to it. Thanks, Sergey. Uh, if I could, you know, move the conversation from, you know, place like Afghanistan, where, as you, you know, correctly pointed out, that any sort of presence of Russians might be met with uh, hostility from the locals and the government alike. If we move from there to sort of places in Africa, where, you know, for example, like Mali, where we're seeing uh, the sort of the military government in Mali. Uh, inviting or sort of contracting uh, Wagner Group sort of as replacement for, you know, French troops that are about to leave and setting this precedent for, for sort of their extended presence. But, you know, like, as you would know that, that Mali is only perhaps the tip of the iceberg of Russian, Russian private military presence in Africa. I'm wondering if you could sort of lay out um, sort of the, the various roles and what, what sort of what Russia has been doing Russian private military companies have been doing in, in Mali, Niger, Chad, and, and, and Sudan? And what value do these places hold for, for Moscow? Uh, yes, thank you for the question. Well, first and foremost, I'd like to see the, uh, the effectual, the real corroboration uh, of this rumor that uh, Russian uh, paramilitary presence in Mali is indeed taking place. Because uh, as far as I know, it's not just um, uh, France or the European Union or the United States who are bitterly opposing Russia uh, on this. It is also some uh, neighbors of Mali, some African countries that uh, are also kind of feel ill at ease with 
um, a possibility of Russian private military contractors being deployed in this country. And this, by the way, came, I believe, from the, the, this message came from um, Senegal, I believe, and maybe some other countries. But uh, so I'm also not sure if uh, the uh, if the if the local government is not using the uh, the spectrum of Russian PMCs to hammer out maybe potentially some more lucrative deals with France or maybe uh, some for some other reasons. So what I will do, uh, I will speculate on uh, why Russia might want to deploy, why Russia might want to use uh, private military contractors in this part of sub-Saharan Africa. Well, first and foremost, I recently wrote a piece for uh, Jamestown Foundation on Russia's potential um, deployment of its PMCs in Mali, where I basically outlined three main perspectives, three main things. First, when we are looking at, and by the way, indeed, indeed, you're absolutely correct. Uh, what, we, what we've been seeing since 2019, and this is perhaps what I should have said uh, in the very beginning of this uh, podcast, is that Russia has been increasingly concentrating on the Sahel uh, G5 uh, macro region, which is uh, rapidly becoming one of the most interesting, one of the main targets for Russia in sub-Saharan Africa. The logical question may be, why is Russia interested in this war-torn economically broke, impoverished region. Three motivations, three things that I would outline here. Well, first and foremost, as again, you rightfully said, Mali, akin to the Central African Republic, may be viewed and perhaps should be viewed as one of those smaller bridges that Russia could use in order to make um, kind of a comeback to Africa more real. Of course, Russia from strategic point of view, from economic business point of view, Russia is much more interested in establishing closer ties with such players as Angola or uh, Nigeria or the uh, South African Republic. But for obvious reasons, Russia, uh, Russia's ability to maneuver, Russia's room for maneuver when it comes to these larger players and more economically developed players uh, are significantly more curtailed, more reduced. Uh, than compared to Mali or Central African Republic. So uh, in this, from this point of view, at this juncture, Mali, uh, the Central African Republic and similar players that form, that comprise the Sahel uh, G5 region uh, may, may seem, may become one of the bridges, one of the opportunities for Russia to indeed perform, uh, to kind of uh, pull off this, uh, this comeback to Africa. This is one thing. The second important element here is uh, related to economic and business interests that Russia has in Western Africa. Uh, well, we all know that Mali uh, does have some impressive deposits of gold and Russia, according to various estimates coming from Russian experts, from Russia's, uh, Russian geologists, uh, Russia uh, might uh, might not have enough gold in the next 35 years. So Russia may be really interested in finding inroads uh, to Sub-Saharan Africa, which is, as we know, is uh, very much, uh, it has abundance of gold. The second more important reason perhaps is that Mali is bordering Guinea. And Guinea, uh, as we also all know, uh, has one of the largest deposits of bauxites in the world. And Russia is one of the top producers, at least in top five producers of aluminum, which uh, uses bauxites in the world. 
And based on my research, based on what I found uh, uh, among Russia's insiders is that if, and just a couple of months ago, Guinea also experienced a military coup and the Russian side was seriously upset and it was seriously worried about this prospect of losing Guinea or at least uh, having its connections, uh, its inroads, uh, its ties to the local bauxite reduced. And as far as I know, Russia does not have any alternative. So from economic point of view, Western Africa and strategic stability in Western Africa is one of the ties, one of the things, sorry, that uh, Russia values. And th this is one of the reasons why Russia might want to have uh, paramilitaries uh, on the ground. And the third thing is uh, more of a hypothetical thing, but um, we, we should not, more geopolitical and hypothetical thing, but we must not dismiss it as well. Well, we all know that um, Russia, for years, Russia has been thinking, has been considering uh, creating uh, or opening a base in Sudan, uh, and uh, Russia is also envious of uh, American connections to Senegal. Senegal, from geo-economic point of view, it uh, provides a leeway for maritime transportations across the Atlantic Ocean. And uh, if we are to replace, let's say, Sudan with uh, Mauritania, which has very similar uh, geostrategic and geographic location, uh, Russia could uh, actually, in a way, try to compete with uh, other players in terms of transportation. So uh, if, if Russia is able to um, kind of uh, increase its foothold, its presence uh, in this line between Mauritania uh, to Sudan, this basically uh, divides Africa onto two parts and at the same time provides Russia with an opportunity to increase its presence uh, both in the Red Sea, which is strategically important, of course, for uh, various types of uh, maritime transportation and the Atlantic Ocean. I know it's, it sounds very ambitious, uh, but um, Russia is a large player, so it does have certain ambitions of its own. Uh, thank you, Sergey. And uh, still keeping our focus on Africa now, as usual, I'm asking you two questions at the price of one. First part of the question uh, uh, is uh, in uh, in Africa, uh, Russian private military company. Uh, what kind of personnel of contractors they deploy? What are their recruiting trends? For example, are they linked with previously linked with Russian military or intelligence sector? What is their age group? And if there is um, any difference uh, uh, from the contractors employed previously in uh, in Syria and in Libya, and especially in Syria and in Libya, what kind of lesson uh, uh, Wagner Group or other PMC learned and what costly mistake uh, they learned uh, that they can be avoided in, in Africa? Excellent. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Alex. I will also ask you uh, answer your question in, in two parts. So the first one about uh, recruitment patterns. Uh, well, first and foremost, it is becoming increasingly hard, increasingly more difficult to find any credible information on this because many Russian journalists, investigative journalists have been silenced. Some of them physically eliminated as we know what happened in the Central African Republic. Some of them fell off the windows. Some of them are sitting in prisons. So it is, as I said, it is becoming 
very, very hard, very, very difficult to find credible information. But again, based on, and this is just my speculation, of course, based on uh, the range of tasks that Russian private military contractors are performing in, um, in Africa, what they might be tasked with, I would say that indeed, and again, based on some rumors that we are hearing from Russia, I would say that yes, indeed, the uh, principles of recruitment, they have changed. So compared to, and I would start here with Ukraine, then Syria and Libya, indeed, I believe that Russia is now recruiting more, uh, more professional personnel that may be on active military service, on active military duty. Why? Well, because the risk of losing this personnel is significantly lower than compared to Syria, Libya, or Ukraine, where Russian PMCs were involved in uh, limited, although of course limited, but still uh, limited scale military operations where, or they could have been captured easily uh, because the, the situation on the ground was oscillating from one part to another and the risk was still very, very high. Today, I believe uh, the, the main task uh, that the main two tasks that are performed by Russian private military contractors, and again, I'm using the Central African Republic as my case study here, uh, is reduced to uh, basically securing local, uh, local uh, important persons, local members of the government. The second one is related to consultancy and training. And the third one is apparently related to uh, protection, physical protection of local uh, gold mines uh, and uh, other mineral deposits. So this does not requ this requires a lot of professionalism, of course, but this does not require uh, participation in um, activities related to combat or to other paramilitary operations. Of course, this this might happen. No one rules this out because these are extremely unstable places. But uh, the the bulk of activity, the nature of activities, it is different. That is why Russia might want to keep the level of uh, personnel involved there or deployed there as high as possible. So the, at least this is my belief. This is what I think. And uh, speaking about the second part of your question about lessons, well, I would not uh, call these mistakes uh, on Russia's part costly, particularly costly. After all, Russia's reputation did not suffer a lot. Russia is still a stakeholder. Moscow is still a stakeholder in all these conflicts in Syria, in Libya, well, in Ukraine. So basically, Russia achieved what it wanted. Uh, and uh, public opinion in Russia, it's kind of ambivalent. Not many people are really aware if you ask what Shevakai in Russian or PMC is. I would, I can guarantee that 99% would not uh, even uh, would not be able to answer what uh, PMCs are. And uh, when liberal Russian media were talking to the people asking about casualties near Dele Zor uh, or in Libya, the majority of Russian audience were saying, well, they had it coming. They're mercenaries. They know uh, that what they were doing is illegal and they were doing this for the money. So it's very, there is a stark difference between the boys who are 18 year olds uh, losing their lives in Chechnya or Afghanistan and those thugs. So Russian reputation, Russia's reputation uh, basically did not, did not suffer a lot. 
even given those casualties, still Russia was able to maintain its presence in all these conflicts. And again, the public opinion is kind of okay. The public opinion, the, the, the general public in Russia is not worried about it at all. I, I, well, I bet they don't even know, the majority of them don't even know that Russia uh, is involved in these countries through the use of uh, paramilitaries, through the use of mercenaries. Some, I would say, even support this. And the second thing uh, you asked about the, the lesson, I think the main lesson that Russia has drawn out of these stories is, or could be formulated as, go ahead with this endeavor in the future. Because again, based on what Russia has achieved, based on what Russia has received out of these conflicts, by far exceeds, by far goes above what it has lost. So in many ways, yes, the Russian uh, mercenaries did suffer a couple of a uh, couple of upsetting losses in, um, well, partly in Ukraine, more of in Syria, in Libya, in Mozambique. But, well, this is what basically this did not harm, this did not uh, damage Russia's reputation. So it's kind of, um, I think Russia is fine with this. Initially, I believe uh, the, Russian, the Russian side was a bit concerned, but then later on, looking at how the Western reaction has been changing, looking at how Russia has actually been gaining popularity among um, repressive and oppressive African regimes. I think Russia is uh, kind of fine now. Uh, thanks, thanks. I mean, if I could sort of build on that, you know, if, if you know, one were to say that, as, as you pointed out, that, that the experiment has been successful and the lesson that Russia is sort of getting out of it is, you know, Let's go ahead with it. This works. Um, if, if, if that's the case, then, then who do we uh, credit for this experiment in the first place? I'm here specifically thinking about, you know, a couple of prominent figures um, in sort of designing and cultivating the Russian private military sector. One is uh, General uh, Gersimov and the other is Mr. Prigozhin. So I'm wondering if you could sort of put these two figures uh, next to each other and, and sort of like talk about their philosophy, their position, and how much and how this sort of contributed to the development of this field or sort of this experiment. I mean, I would I would take a slightly different approach. I would I would not concentrate on Gerasimov or on Prigozhin. I would rather say that the idea, and I found this through my research when I was doing with Jamestown over this large project. What I found was quite interesting. In fact, in 2010, I believe. It was uh, the head of Russia's general staff, uh, Makarov, who was actually the first one to have introduced, to have entertained the idea of private military companies and the value, the uh, strategic value of private military companies. So I believe it should be the, the credit should go to Mr. Makarov, to General Makarov. And the idea, again, it is not a new idea in many ways. And again, let's go back to what the Soviet Union was doing in the Middle East, in Sub-Saharan Africa, in North Africa, especially in Algeria, in many ways, what those, what the Russian guys are doing now and have been doing since 2014 in these theaters, in many ways, ideology aside, of course, and profit aside, in many ways, from operational point of view, this is commensurate with what the Soviet Union was doing back then. So what I think Gerasimov did 
or well i don't know who took this decision to be honest i think it's and this is the idea that i've been trying to convey since since i started working on russian pmcs i think this there is a consortium of actors that stand behind pmcs i wouldn't say that it's just one institution or one body within the russian state architecture let us take a look at what is what has been happening in syria or in libya at least several actors have contributed and in Ukraine have contributed to what has happened there. It is obviously the Russian general staff, Gerasimov, because this is the brainstorm, the brainstorming mechanism of the Russian armed forces, as it is sometimes known, as sometimes dubbed. The second thing is the Russian special forces, because as we all know, the Molkina polygon in Krasnodar Krai, it officially belongs to GU units, uh, special units. So no trainings could have been done without them uh, being aware of this. The third actor is Russia's Ministry for Foreign Affairs. Uh, we all know that, uh, and this is a little bit unconventional, but uh, when the Russian PMCs were spotted in the Balkans, uh, when they were organizing youth training camps, it was the Russian Ministry for Foreign Affairs that actually stood behind this initiative. And I also wrote about this for uh, Jamestown, uh, it was quite surprising to me, but again, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs it stood behind it. So uh, returning back to your question, I think that um, Prigozhin uh, was chosen as a middleman in many ways. Uh, he was not a well-known person before that. Uh, he's not, uh, he, he has never been an oligarch, really. He's a tycoon. He does have a lot of money, but he is... Um, uh, his ability to influence political decisions in Russia are minimal. So he is kind of close to Putin, but he's not as close or as influential as Sechin or uh, Yakunin or uh, someone from this category. So he's mostly a tycoon. He's a smokescreen. Again, based on information that we were able to receive from Russia, earlier, of course, not now. Prigozhin never really understood what PMCs are, what he was interested in. Uh, and we all know that Prigozhin did have criminal records and that had nothing to do with uh, murders or banditry, it was different. Uh, Prigozhin was interested in this commercial part of PMCs. He would later become interested in commercial part of PMCs. And I believe it's the Russian state. And to be more specific, the power or silavi power ministries, power bodies within Russia, such as the FSB, maybe the GU, definitely the Ministry of, uh, Ministry of Defense that play the main part, that play the main role in the development and in creation of this phenomenon. So again, I don't think that we should pay too much attention specifically to Prigozhin, but rather uh, to the Russian state and uh, its foreign policy, where it is trying to activate its foreign policy, then large business follows, and of course, other private or not private, public and private bodies and institutions. Thank you. Uh, I totally agree with you, Sergey. Especially, uh, I think uh, in the United States uh, there is a lot of attention in what has been called the Gerasimov doctrine, but in some way is a Primakov doctrine because, as you mentioned, beside uh, uh, the privatization and uh, the financial part, the recent financial part, uh, also. It, 
Primakov was considering uh, the MENA region, Russia, soft underbelly. And still, I think these are the general stuff. Uh, it's uh, it's quite keeping in, in focus. Uh, having said that, uh, we can shift uh, from the attention on Prigozhin, but also looking at his work, what he, he did with the Internet Research Agency. I mean, the term uh, about disinformation, uh, it's a Russian term, disinformatia. Uh, and uh, we are looking now at boot of the ground, but uh, in your opinion, can we foresee a kind uh, of privatization or even a small screen uh, in which uh, we are going to witness an increase of digital mercenaries, uh, let's say a privatization of FSB and GRU hacking capabilities? Oh, uh, thank you, Alex. Uh, well, we must not rule out this uh, this option. Of course, I think that um, given the trend, given the developments in Russia's and Russia's um, kind of general understanding of uh, information confrontation, because in Russian parlance, uh, in Russian language, uh, information confrontation is based on cyber attacks, disinformation. So all of these elements uh, they kind of constitute. Uh, the information confrontation category. I also wrote a book chapter for uh, Jamestown about uh, this phenomenon, which is very interesting. And of course, it requires a separate uh, discussion. But building on what you said, I believe we have already seen these instances in the Central African Republic where Russia has been quite effective, quite efficient uh, in spreading anti-French disinformation or either uh, anti-French information or misinformation campaigns. And in Syria, uh, the, there, there is a very interesting case study of uh, FAN agency, F-A-N agency, uh, that uh, has been rumored uh, to have cooperated, collaborated with uh, Wagner Group on the ground now, when they were creating, when they were making their broadcasts. Uh, right from the scenery. So let's say the Russian side or the Syrian troops have just concluded uh, a paramilitary military operation against ISIS or maybe opposition forces. And then out of the blue, this fun agency occurs. It's the first among Russian and Western agencies that is able to interview the, the local Syrian troops. Uh, They're able to kind of cover the cover the developments, whereas the Western agencies, Western journalists are prohibited or are scared of going there for obvious reasons, and we cannot blame anyone. And those guys are the first ones on the theater, in the scenery, and they are basically um, kind of benefiting the most out of it. In the future, of course, I think that uh, this is uh, possible. I think that I wouldn't call it privatization of uh, cyber, uh, cyber attacks or cyber confrontation or misinformation. Uh, the word private here is very, uh, very conditional because if we, and I think I believe you said it before, uh, if we critically analyze activities of Russian private military contractors, private military companies, quasi-private military companies, there is a great deal of the Russian government that is actually involved there. So the word private is indeed superfluous in many ways. That's why I think we need to come up with something new, a different term when it comes to this Russian entity, because 
in a way, these are mercenaries, but at the same time, these are not classical mercenaries. These are mercenaries that are acting, acting on behalf of the Russian state, which makes them not private per se. So, as I said before, yes, we must not rule out uh, further cooperation and further activities in the informational or cyber domain. We'll see how it goes. We'll see how it uh, how it uh, all unravels, how it develops. But as I said before, we have already seen some instances in the Central African Republic and in other parts of Sub-Saharan Africa. In Mozambique or in Madagascar, rather, uh, the uh, Russians tried to influence the local elections. This didn't work out. Maybe that was just the beginning there, uh, kind of attempt to uh, to tackle the turf, to try to see how things are going really. Maybe that was not their strategic objective. We'll see, we will have to wait and see how things will develop in the future on this. Yeah, um, I totally agree. Um, as you know, most of my work uh, is on China private security companies. Uh, and uh, the biggest question is uh, where the state and, uh, and the private start in China. And I think with some respect, uh, we can apply the same uh, uh, analysis to, to the Russian sector. Amim, the floor back to you. Yeah, I mean, if you know, this is a very interesting conversation. But I mean, like, to move uh, the sort of geography a little bit, we've, we've. I want to ask. I mean, we've we've heard some news about um, Russian private military involvement in places as far off as Venezuela, um, or sort of you know closer to like in places like Belarus. So, out, uh, do you see these sort of you know uh, these places outside of Africa, outside of Middle East, like the Russian private military involvement? Like, are these isolated incidents or or are these also part of like a bigger, um, bigger project of some kind or bigger foreign policy objective of some kind as well? Uh, thank you. For, it's an excellent question. And uh, unfortunately, I don't know. What I do know, however, is uh, basically Russian private military companies. I, I mean, if we are referring to their systemic use, they're typically employed in theaters in areas where two main things come together, Russia's economic and geoeconomic interests and geopolitical interests. So uh, we could try to forecast, uh, try to predict where to expect appearance of Russian private military contractors based on this combination. So when we see a combination of economic or geoeconomic and geopolitical interests, indeed, uh, we can anticipate, we can expect uh, presence of Russian PMCs. Based on this, and I also kind of outlined this in one of my initial papers on private military companies in scopes of the same project with the Jamestown. Um, there are certain conditions or preconditions where Russian PMCs typically appear, theaters that have the following, a combination of the following qualities. First, uh, these are places, these are areas that are endowed with strategic, with important natural resources. Second thing, these places are typically politically weak, politically destabilized, which allows the Russian side to kind of, kind of impose its conditions or uh, pursue its interests easier. Thirdly, these countries are typically economically weak, economically broken. So they cannot, they are price oriented. So they have to really uh, kind of prioritize quality and 
uh, quality and cost balance. Uh, again, if we are referring to the, uh, let's say, Nigeria or uh, Angola or some other players in Africa that have enough economic means, uh, they will measure, they're able to measure different opportunities, different options. And the last element is uh, typically Russian uh, mercenaries, Russian PMCs appear in places in countries that are either politically isolated or subject to different types of international sanctions. So if we combine all these elements, we could try to probably forecast where Russian private military, private security companies could appear. Belarus, as you said before, uh, it's a very shadow story with this uh, Wagner uh, guys. So what, what their real task was is still quite unclear. So if we combine these elements, economic profitability, political weakness, ongoing civil war or confrontation, international isolation, and a certain extent, certain degree of international sanctions, then we could try to maybe uh, project to try to forecast uh, potential area where Russian PMCs could appear. It could change in the future. Again, I don't know. But based on what we've seen so far, this, this, this is the portrait. This is the kind of, uh, if we are to take uh, a look at it as a jigsaw puzzle. These are smaller pieces that when we combine together, we have a picture. Thank you. And as you mentioned, Belarus, uh, if I recall correct, uh, when uh, some uh, contractors allegedly from Wagner were arrested there, they found uh, a paramilitary patch that in Russian was uh, loosely translated in uh, our business is killing and business is good. And uh, but now let's move our focus uh, from uh, South America or other area here where we are now in uh, in Singapore, that is a leading logistic hub in Southeast Asia. All our previous guests foresee an increasing role for Singapore in the very niche insurance sector related to security, kidnapping and ransom, anti-piracy insurance, and maybe a regulator hub for the Asian private security market. Uh, what do you see Singapore in this context? A competing, a competing ground or even a platform for the provision of Made in Russia private security service? Uh, thank you. That's a very complex question. And as a person who doesn't know Singapore that well, aside from the economical part, the Sing Singapore being one of the main crossroads in terms of uh, trade and transportation, as well, one of the hubs of uh, uh, services. I mean, uh, it all depends, of course, on the extent or rather the political and economic ties between Singapore and Russia. Based on my other research that I'm doing on LNG, on uh, oil, on some elements of climate change, I see that Singapore and Russia, and Russia is quite interested in collaborating, cooperating with Singapore in many areas related to renewable and non-renewable energy, climate change, things like this. So I don't think uh, that, well, first and foremost, again, getting back to what I said in the beginning, Russia's, Russia's model, Russia's use of private, quasi-private military companies is very different from uh, analogs from uh, their opponents in the West, uh, in Australia, in Africa, uh, South African Republic. So I don't think that Russia 
is willing or will be willing to officially register its private military companies. In a way, this is a shadow or shady uh, pillar or shady instrument that is used by the Russian state, by the Russian uh, military in order to pursue certain, uh, certain objectives, certain goals in uh, strategically important areas. So from this point of view, from this perspective, I don't think that Singapore is likely to become uh, a competing or a rivaling hub for Russian private, uh, private military or private military and security companies. I, for now, at least, I don't see any grounds for this. Maybe in the future, things will change, especially if Russia chooses to legalize. And I will talk about this a little bit uh, in the future. I want to make this point. Um, if Russia chooses to legalize its private military companies and uh, effectively transform them in private military and security companies. But based on what I'm seeing so far, based on what I'm seeing right now, Russia does not have this desire because the issue of legalization of private military contractors has been raised in Russia for several times. And allegedly, the ministry, uh, the ministry for foreign affairs, some other powerful ministries, they were for this. But when the, the vote came, everyone was against all of a sudden. And more, more importantly, it was the Russian, Russia's Ministry of Defense that was against it. So for some reason, Russia wants and Russia needs to keep these players, to keep these actors illegal. As, as, as long as they are illegal, they don't pose um, competition, at least on legal point, from legal point of view, uh, to those companies that are official, that exist officially. So for, the, for this, based at least for the next maybe couple of years, Russia will not become a competing hub for Singapore or uh, Hong Kong or other places. But in the future, anything is possible, anything might change. And we'll see how this unravels. It all depends, as I said before, it all depends on Russia's position and Russia's goals and objectives uh, on this. Uh, thanks. I mean, this has been an absolutely fascinating discussion, but unfortunately, we're running out of time. But I mean, since we're on the question of, of, of the future, um, I want to pose a question that we've been asking all of our guests. Um, and that is, uh, what do you see as the future of warfare and security management in complex environment in perhaps the in the coming 30 years for the Russian private military and um, industrial sector? Um, you know, easy question. <laughs> uh, thank you, thank you very much for this question. Unfortunately, um, uh, unfortunately, I don't have this gift of forecasting things accurately, so I cannot predict really things. But uh, based on what I'm seeing now, based on the kind of discussion that is ongoing in Russia's military circles, and based on what I'm seeing in Russia's defense industrial complex. I can uh, kind of uh, try, to, I could try to answer your question, which I will break down onto two parts. In the first part, I'd say that, uh, well, it's very hard again to forecast what's gonna happen in the next five years based on with ongoing robotization, based on the implementation of the artificial intelligence and its use in the military. But, and it's very important, based on what Russian leading military analysts and based on what Russia's military officials are saying, what they're prioritizing is the so-called human factor, what we call in Russia is Chelyvechesky factor, human factor. It is still 
the human beings who will be in charge, who will be controlling robots, even in terms of artificial intelligence. So I believe that this human factor will not go anywhere. And this means that Russia is likely to continue using its private military companies for a specific and other non-state actors. We will see how this may evolve in the future, may evolve in the future for a specific geopolitical economic objectives in different parts of the world. Um, I also did a research on this, and so far there have been several proposals on what needs to what needs to be done about private military companies. Well, one option is complete and full legalization of PMCs. This might happen in the future. And if this does happen, then their nature, their activities will be very different. Of course, they won't be used uh, as regular troops uh, like in Syria or in other parts. I don't think that this is what is going to happen in the next couple of years, at least. The second option is to use some kind of a hybrid model between, uh, well, in other words, what Russia is doing now, kind of a combination of special operation forces and illegal, semi-legal private military companies. This is the most realistic option. And the third option, something that I found in one really interesting research by leading one of the leading Russian conservative, ultra-conservative military analysts, is to transform uh, private military companies with employment of Cossacks and other paramilitary groups into so-called territorial defense units, those forces that will be ensuring or securing strategic stability within Russia to deal with so-called orange revolutions, uh, they would be able to control partly the border, so things like this. To me, the most realistic option is number two, where Russian private military companies will retain their uh, de facto illegal status, but they will be performing certain actions that lie somewhere in between. And your question about private or about uh, defense industrial complex developments in Russian private developments in Russian defense industrial complex uh, will be defined by three main processes. The first one is uh, the visible, still visible attrition of workforce and the lack of qualified experts, which is something that is undeniable. We don't know how Russia is planning to deal to cope with this. This is a serious challenge. Even though uh, Russian defense industrial complex has been able to come up with some interesting achievements, some interesting pieces, uh, some of them quite unique, but the trend, but the trend, strategic trend is there. The second trend is uh, basically Russia's ability or inability to find new markets because now Russia is expanding in Sub-Saharan Africa, but many of these countries are penniless. They are insolvable. Uh, they can pay for the services that Russia provides. By following this path, Russia is risking into sliding in something that the Soviet Union did, the kind of mistake that the Soviet Union did by providing uh, weaponry services on credit for African countries. And this is clearly a path to nowhere. And the second one, the third one, is the role of military circles within Russia that tends to increase. And if this continues, then uh, and by the way, Russian military industrial complex, and I did the research on this, is economically unsustainable, so it is unprofitable. If Russian military circles will retain and will reinforce 
their current position. This means that Russia would have to spend more money on this. And this is again a path to nowhere. We'll see where it goes. We don't know that. Russia tends to surprise people, uh, but the trend is there. We'll see how it develops, but yeah. Thank you very much, Sergey. Now that we start talking about military industrial complex, I do believe we can go on for hours, especially looking at Russian S-400 uh, heavy needs in road from the Middle East to Turkey and so on. But unfortunately, we are at the end of our podcast and I would like to thank you again, Sergey, for joining us today. It's been a very informative and challenging discussion. Also, I would like to thank to our listener and as Briefly, we have been discussing about uh, disinformation. Uh, I think it will help us to rope in our next guest, that will be Elliot Higgins. Elliot Higgins is the founder of Bellingcat and the Brown Moses blog. Elliot focuses on the weapon used in the conflict in Syria and open source investigation tools and techniques. Thank you again to everybody and have a good day from Singapore. Thank you. Thank you. Have a great day from Edmonton, Western Alberta. Thank you.